0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: So we are at the absolute favorite Torah portion of every bar mitzvah child who learns about their Torah portion. Um so you know my famous joke when the rabbis get together and we had our cabaret that one person came up um <clears throat> and we we wrote a bunch of parodies and one of my colleagues wrote a parody as the bar mitzvah child um singing tazria i've gotten the parsha tazria so right not a lot of people would laugh at that glad this room did um so yeah, right. In joke. Exactly right. So, uh, the reason that is funny is because this is the parsha. This and parsha and mitzora, We read them both, uh, this week. It's a double parsha. They both deal with, uh, skin affliction, a skin disease that also can be found, uh, on fabric and on the walls of homes. Um, it is called in Hebrew tzaraat. Um, the person suffering from it is called the mitzora, so the one who has tzara'at. Tzara'at um, is translated as leprosy, as many of you know. Um, so it is translated as leprosy. It is not leprosy. It is not Hansen's disease um, because tzara'at gets better. Like it kind of comes and then you're quarantined and then it's watched and it often goes away. That is not the case with Hansen's disease. So even once they knew it was not Hansen's disease, the decision was made to keep the translation as leprosy. Y'all have been studying with me for a long time. Tell me why. Why was it kept as leprosy if that's not what it is? All right. It doesn't matter that you've studied with me it's a long time, it apparently.
2: It was something that people really didn't want to have.
1: So something that people really didn't want to have, there was a, an incredible stigma about leprosy for a very long time. Uh, particularly in the ancient world. Um, so this is why you have leper colonies. This is why you had islands where they were dumped so that it would not spread to other people.
2: Leprosy was known and right. whatever this is, mm. it wasn't.
1: So um, so to Judah's point, everybody knew leprosy. Like you hear leprosy, you know, in our generation, polio, you hear that and there's an immediate visceral reaction. Um, and it's a very common reaction. Um, I mean, not common reaction, but you know what I mean? Like, Everybody knows what you're talking about. Um, so um, so the decision was made to keep the uh, translation as it is, as leprosy. So just know that as we're reading, um, that's not what it is. We have the translation as it is. We know leprosy, obviously, nor can any skin disease in our experience. And the skin disease probably is more like psoriasis or eczema, right? Something where the skin turns white, um, the hair can turn white, uh, it can spread. Um, when you see it on clothing, most likely we're talking about mold. Um, when you see it um, on the walls of a house, again, we're talking about mold or mildew. In the ancient world, of course, there was no way to know that those are different organisms, different things causing what looks like a similar eruption on skin, fabric, and the walls of a house. In each of these cases, skin is that which keeps stuff out and that which keeps stuff in. Right. Like I just had blood drawn, um, for my annual physical. And it's like, I don't know about y'all, but like I have to take such a deep breath and like get my head in a space for that to happen. And it's not because it's so painful. I mean, this one was particularly painful. <laughs> Look at that ruse, but, um, but, um, it's not about the pain, right? It's about that feeling of this is just so wrong because your veins are there. To keep stuff out and to keep other stuff in. And that is a barrier that is not supposed to be crossed, right? And your brain kind of knows this is really, really wrong, like on all kinds of levels. Um, and so that's, so that's the understanding of skin. It's, it keeps stuff in. It keeps stuff out. It is the barrier between our innards and the outer world. It is what protects us from the outer world. It is what can also demonstrate the effect of the outer world on us. If you get poison ivy, you've had contact with the outer world that we can identify. If you have a mosquito bite, it's a symptom of an interaction with the outer world. We also have acne. We have other things that are clearly an expression of something happening in the inner world that that is shown on the skin. So both our interaction with the outer world appears on our skin sometimes and what's happening for us. And the inner, in our inner life also shows on the outer surface of the skin, right? So that, that is one way that we understand, um, all this kind of talk about the or, the, the skin. Um, and the rabbis have a lot to do with playing with or, ayin vav resh. Ayin vav resh is skin. Aleph vav resh is light. They play with this a lot. Um, so, uh, so, or, and, or, okay. So, so that's about skin clothing also, right. Is a, is a, is a, I I want a different word than barrier. What am I trying to, is a boundary, right. Between my person, my body and the outer world and the outer world and my body, right. So clothing functions very much like skin as does the walls of a house right? It's what keeps you in. keeps you safe from the outer world, the elements of the outer world and stuff from within the house in the Israelite understanding can also manifest on that boundary, just like it does on skin. And as they understood it also on clothing. Okay. So for them, for in the ancient, and, and I'm unpacking this some, because otherwise it's very hard for us to get in the mindset of what's happening in this Parsha um so th- th- when there is a disruption internally that is expressed externally on the skin the boundary between my inner self and the outer world when there's a disruption in my life that's going to show up possibly on the clothing i wear that per- that is the boundary between me, my body, and the uh, and the, everything outside my body. Or it might show up on the walls of my home, which is the boundary between my family and the larger community. Yeah? So for them, those are absolutely related. It's the same. These are different ways that, that a disruption in the field is manifested. For both ancient Israel and the rabbis, That disruption is not physical. I want to be very clear about that. It is not understood to be physical. It is understood to be a disruption in the spiritual field that manifests as physical. The same way physicians will tell people under a huge amount of stress, your cardiac numbers are coming in crappy and it's not because of what you're eating. Right? We know this. We know there's a connection between our physical manifestation of, of other disruptions or stresses or problems, issues that manifest physically, but are not physical in origin. It's dis-ease. And this is what the Israelites understood and the rabbis take it and run with it. They go, woof, like way out of the, you know, park with it. Um, we're going to stay with ancient Israel this time. We've done the rabbinic interpretations before, um, but we're going to stay with, um, with the biblical understanding and looking at it from Zornberg's perspective, because you know, I'm committed to bringing you stuff that's interesting and different than what we've looked at. I've not seen these interpretations before. Um, so I learned these, so I'm bringing them to you because it was very exciting to have a new interpretation. For those of you who are studying this for the first time, it's also lovely, um, But for those of us who have done Sarah a lot, it's really nice to have, right, a new, a new set of insights into, into a a portion of what's going on with this. Okay. So the, before we look at the Torah text, one more point. Um, purity and impurity were understood to be the operative two categories in ancient Israel with the Mishkan and with the temple in place. Purity and impurity were, were just States of being, they were just states of being, but they're very strict observances that go with the state of being impure so that you don't bring impurity in places that need to be preserved as pure. So that was a big concern was impurity spreading in the camp, not sara'at. It's the impurity that they were worried would spread. Okay. Because once you have Sara'at, you are impure. And so, but if people don't know, if you have it all over your back and you're wearing a you know four-cornered long thing, people don't know you have it, so they don't know you're impure. You may not know you're impure, right? So the fear, the fear that you'll hear in the text or, or in the treatment of it is about the impurity spreading through the camp. Um, and so we, when, and when you look at the diagnosis of Sarat and Zornberg really points this out, which I'm not sure I ever really paid attention to before, is that it's almost impossible to keep track of if there's a white, if there's a white blah, 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 then you're impure. But if there's a, if, I mean, and if there's a white spot within the blah, 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 then you're pure. So we'll say, wait, so does white cause impurity or purity? Well, it turns out both. Right, and if there's a white hair, but there's not other, so it's almost impossible to keep track of what's going on symptomatically and how that lines up with whether that means you're pure or impure. Um, so we're not, we're not exactly sure anything about how this actually would have been, right, diagnosed and dealt with. Sorry, if it's a medical disease, uh, if it's not a medical disease and a spiritual disease, why is it contagious? Or I guess <laughs> impurity is contagious always. Okay always impurity is by definition contagious vessels you can, can't pour from an impure vessel into a pure vessel you contaminate the pure vessel unless it's stone right? i mean so there's lots of literature about in the temple ha- how you protected against impurity spreading okay it's an obsession right like for the rabbis it becomes obsessive the way they talk about it and it translates over into kashrut Right. Can you eat on earthenware, milk and then meat? No, because it will transfer. But stone is not porous, so it won't. Right. So there's just this. So that's where we see vestiges of this system of purity and impurity and cross contamination, which was a very serious concern. Because what can't dwell in a space of purity? God. Sorry. Impurity. Yes. Correct. Okay. So now we're going to look at a little bit of the text. So this is how we start a lot of stuff. So God says to Moshe and Aharon, 13.1, when a person has on the skin of the body swelling, a rash or a discoloration, and it develops into a scaly affection on the skin of the body, it shall be reported to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons, the priest. This is not dealt with by medical personnel. This is dealt with by the priests. Why? It's a spiritual dis-ease. The priest shall examine the affection on the skin of the body. Okay, here we go. If hair in the affected patch has turned white and the affection appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it is tzara'at. When the priest sees it, he shall pronounce the person impure. But if it is a white discoloration on the skin of the body, which does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall isolate the affected person for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall conduct an examination. And if the affection has remained unchanged in color and the disease has not spread on the skin, the priest shall isolate that person for another seven days. So this is two-week quarantine if there's no change. On the seventh day, the priest shall again conduct an examination. If the affection has faded and has not spread on the skin, the priest shall pronounce the person pure. It is a rash, meaning like you may have bumped into poison ivy. After washing those clothes, that person shall be pure. But if the rash, so if they didn't have tsaraat and it was just a rash, you you wash your clothes and you're considered pure. But if the rash should spread on the skin after the person has been seen by the priest and pronounced pure, that person shall again report to the priest. And if the priest sees that the rash has spread on the skin, the priest shall pronounce that person impure. It is tzara'at. When a person has a scaly affection, it shall be reported to the priest. If the priest finds on the skin a white swelling which has turned some hair white with a patch of undiscolored flesh in the swelling, it is chronic tsara'at on the skin of the body, and the priest shall pronounce the person impure. Being impure, that person need not be isolated. If the eruption spreads out over the skin so that it covers all the skin of the affected person from head to foot, that the priest can see. If the priest sees that the eruption has covered the whole body, he shall pronounce as pure the affected person, who is pure from having turned all white. You see how this makes no sense. But as soon as undiscolored flesh appears in it, that person shall be impure. When the priest sees the undiscolored flesh, he shall pronounce the person impure. The undiscolored flesh is impure. It is Saraat. But if the undiscolored flesh again turns white, that person shall come to the priest, and the priest shall conduct an examination. If the affection has turned white, the priest shall pronounce as pure the affected person who is then pure. When what, huh? When an inflammation appears on the skin of one's body and it heals and a white swelling or a white discoloration streaked with red develops where the inflammation was, that person shall report to the priest. If the priest finds that it appears lower than the rest of the skin and that the hair in it has turned white, the priest shall pronounce the person impure. It is that that is broken out in the inflammation. But if the priest finds that there's no white hair in it, and is no lower than the rest of the skin, and it is faded, the priest shall isolate that person for seven days. If it should spread in the skin, the priest shall pronounce the person impure. It is nega. But if the discoloration remains stationary, not having spread, it is the scar of the inflammation, the priest shall pronounce the person pure. When the skin of one's body sustains a burn by fire and the patch from the burn is a discoloration, either white streaked or with red or white, the priest shall examine it. If some hair is turned white in the discoloration, which itself appears to go deeper than the skin, it is sarahat that is broken out in the burn. The priest shall pronounce the person impure. It is sarat. But if the priest finds that there's no white hair in the discoloration that is not lower than the rest of the skin and it is faded, the person shall be isolated for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest, okay. So you get the idea. This goes on and on and on. Yes, George. Uh, were there any kind of physicians at some point that the priest would refer? Uh, um, I don't know the answer to that question. Yes, there were people who were medical. There were healers, right? Yeah. There were people who understood herbs and and things you put on burns. What are those? So, I'm thinking solvents, but that's not the word. Yeah, not. I swear to God, I'm worried about my brain. Um Solve, right? They they know about those things. They're experts in those things. That is not what they understood to be the treatment for this. Okay. Even if it continues, and... it's not. That is not the issue. The issue is not a medical problem. A spiritual. Problem. Correct. Correct. If it's sara'at, it's a medical problem. We're not told. What they do, if it's just a regular burn that's not healing, we're assuming, mm-hmm. I would assume they know to go to somebody who can help with the physical issue of that burn not healing.
0: Sounds to me like the
1: priest can make a lot of money on <laughs> So the priest makes nothing on these visits. The priest is supported by sacrifice. The priest is supported by people bringing offerings. That is a conversation that some folks have about the sacrificial system and who brings what offerings. There is a lot in the literature, well, not a lot, but I have found some stuff in the literature that talks about there was an agenda by the priests to say, here's when you bring a Shlamim, here's when you bring a khatat, here's when you need to bring an asham, here's when you need to bring whatever. And that there was a motivation to make more money to, by having more stake Right You get more of your provisions provided by the people the more they are required to bring sacrifice to mark's point okay, but that that is a fairly cynical um view, which I happen to share um that probably there was a lot of that going on, right in the battle of you know when when this gets codified, who codifies when, when you bring what sacrifice um, okay, so but in this case. That it, it, and to Mark's point, it, they do not make any money. They do not get anything for this, the priests. It is interesting to me that it is the priest, the high priest, who deals with this. The person is in isolation. The high priest, the most important functional role mitigating the relationship between the people, Israel, and the divine, leaves the the, you know, the Mishkan and goes to the person's apartment to check on them. It is very interesting that as horrible as the thought of getting Sara'at was, who's in charge of dealing with it and looking at it and seeing what it is and seeing if it's better and seeing if it's spread is the most important person mitigating the relationship between Israel and the divine. I find that fascinating. Um, how, how many of you have tried to get an appointment with a doctor because something's going on? Right? They're too busy, too important, too, and I'm not saying they think that, you know what I'm saying, but it's like we, we've put them in a category of they're very hard to access. I, highest, mean, I beg, I beg
0: your pardon, please.
1: Yeah, it's okay, Bob. It's okay. So the, um, <laughs> right? We know your schedules. The, um, but the, the point is the high priest, this was, this was the one of the most important things, it appears, because it was counted on that the person would report it to the priest and they would be examined, right? There are people who can't get into see physician when they're sick. But the, What does that say about priorities? Clearly, it was a priority, or at least according to the authors of this text, it was considered a priority that these people be treated and seen and addressed and dealt with, Um and not just left out there until the priest can get there.
2: My question is about the priority of this entire text because it's gotten almost as much attention as the building of the Mishkan. Yeah, right. And I wonder why the importance is so great granted that it's a spiritual affliction. So you tell me I'm thinking I I think there's some very primitive um philosophy at work here as in many cultures when somebody has some kind of a physical affliction, they blame it on something else going on. But if they accept that it's a spiritual something going on, well, I why think, would it get so much attention? I think they can't afford any contamination in a delicate place. Correct. Correct.
1: If we thought something was spiritually upsetting and we could catch it, might not we make that? a huge important part of our culture is to make sure people are protected from it. Right. So I think it's natural that if it's something that's like, uh Oh, like this is, this is massively disruptive, then you want to contain it and you want to deal with it because it is an absolute danger to the health of the community. This, because, but beyond that, because if God can't dwell among the people, what happens? It ain't just spiritual. What happens? They can be defeated by their enemies, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's survival. It, it, it's dealing with the survival of the, of the, of the clan.
0: One of the things that strikes me about this, about the, the multitude of different and contradictory manifestations of the internal, uh, uh, dysfunction, the internal spiritual dysfunction is that there is a, a an implicit notion that the impurity that is within, uh, is something that is, in a sense, very devious. It manifests in a, in a variety of different ways and has to be constantly, uh, guarded against, which, you know, that's, that's pretty obvious, I think. But the, um the sense that it is constantly coming from within the person and constantly, uh, uh disguising itself and, and operating in very unexpected ways that have to be ascertained by in these odd ways by the priest um i think uh, uh says something about the the sense of what goes on within and what the what the relationship with the divine is for
1: yeah so th- i just want to i just want to push a little bit on devious so i know what you're saying that like it's so confusing and it's so kind of tricky. I'll give you tricky. Um, but remember, it's it's thought to be the behavior of the person. This is not random. D- do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's the ride. It's not what's devious. It's right. I mean, it, and I don't even want to say that they would think that, that about a person, but it's like you have to be vigilant as a people so that sarah doesn't show up.
0: Right. And the vigilance, I think, is, is really, uh, is really vital because it shows up in so many different ways, uh, uh, and in such unexpected ways that it, uh, it, uh, makes itself known.
1: But the vigilance is not about stuff that is tricky. It's clear. Here's Torah law. Follow Torah law or else. It's not tricky. Diagnosing sarat might be tricky. So it might show up in really kind of, you know, interesting ways to try to figure out is it or isn't it or is it or isn't it. But, but the human behavior is very clear. Here are the laws, follow the laws or else. Right. Okay. So, um, Amy, so let's go. Amy, yes. Amy, is yes. It, is, isn't the, the
0: salient point here, um, the issue of spread, um, whether we look at it as external or uh, internal, spiritual, and psychological, the issue is the spread through the entire people. The and, spread and
1: of think, impurity. Correct. And, that and is I the think, concern.
0: Right. Absolutely. And this is just an outward manifestation correct. of the potential of that spread.
1: Correct. Yes.
2: I'm a yes. little concerned too about those of us who have white hair. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yours is naturally white. It is not Sarah. It is not a concern. You are pure.
0: Um, by the Yay. way, Yay. Um, uh, there's right. a condition, there's a condition called vitiligo. Yes, um, correct. So we're, white. we're sure
1: it's a class. It's part of that kind of class of, yes, right. of skin issues. All right. So, As for the person who has tzara'at, the clothes shall be rent, the head shall be left bare, and the upper lip shall be covered over. And that person shall call out tameh, tameh, impure, impure. Zornberg has a lot to say about this from the Midrashim. The person shall be impure as long as the disease is present. Being impure, that person shall dwell apart in a dwelling outside the camp. Now it moves on to, and I just want to do one sentence of this because we're going to get commentary on it. When an eruptive affection occurs in cloth of wool or linen fabric, in the warp or in the woof of the linen or the wool, or in a skin or in anything made of skin, if the affection in the cloth of the skin in the warp or the woof, or in any article of skin is streaky green or red, it is an eruptive affection. It shall be shown to the priest. And the priest, after examining the infection, shall isolate the affected article for seven days, right? Then we go on through, like, how this is dealt with, right? Um, and that's where I want to stop there. The only thing I want to do in Mitzorah is verse 33. This is going on and 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 what's happening and how the priest is dealing with some of this and mitigating some of this. God spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, So, when you come to the land of Canaan that I give you as a possession, and I give the the, uh, eruptive affection of Tzara'at on a house in the land that you possess, then the owner of the house shall come to the priest, saying... Something like a plague has appeared on my house. We're going to look at commentary on this. When you enter the land of Kanaan that I give you as a possession, and I give you the eruption of Tsara'at on a house, then the owner will come and tell the priest. All right. We're going to get a lot of commentary on what this means. Remember, the rabbis are looking always, and 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 Zornberg's always looking. Any commentator worth their salt is looking past the pshat. They're looking past the simple explanation that sounds like when you come to the land of Canaan and you have a house and there's tera'at, and it, that is that is not what's going on here. Suggest our commentators who look very carefully right at this, which was why we're here because we love that, don't we love that? We love that. Okay, <laughs> so let's let's take a look at what is some of the commentary. Um, So most of this, except the last piece, is brought by Aviva Zornberg in her new book, The Hidden Order of Intimacy. Sarat, so, as a category of issues from the human body, is set apart from impurity originating in the world outside. Here, impurity originates not in consumption or in contact with the world. Rather, it emerges from the unknown interior of the body onto the body's surface. It progresses through time. Its progress through time is a significant factor in diagnosis. Symptoms appear on the skin, that sensitive envelope that separates the body contents from the outside world. The skin is a liminal area, which makes the ancient world very nervous. Liminal liminal spaces make the ancient world and the rabbis very nervous because it's not this or that, right? It's not clear, and that is very... That's crazy making for people who are obsessed with taxonomy, in which are registered both inner malaises, meaning the skin, physical and emotional, and reactions to the outside world. It is a responsive organ reacting to food, touch, climate, to attractions and repulsions, fears and pleasures. The Hebrew word for skin is or in these Torah passages. It is often called or the skin of his flesh, meaning the skin of your meat. It functions as a porous barrier between inside and outside. The Hebrew evokes alertness, responsiveness, vitality. The pathology of tzara'at in which the skin of bleached is bleached of color is associated with death. So Zornberg here looks at the etymology of the Hebrew word or skin. Uh, how Barry, how do you say uh, to be awake in Hebrew? I know it's I and but give me the actual infinitive.
0: Lihiot er.
1: Lihiot er. To be er, awake. So er is awake. Or, says Zornberg, skin, is referring to the fact that it is alive. It is awake. It is responsive. It is um, it's about vitality right? When you're healthy, and, I, and I'm sure they had this instinct in the ancient world. When people are healthy, their skin looks good. When people look yellow or whatever, right, you, or red, it's like something, you can tell something about what's going on. And what she's suggesting is, so if that's about awake, vital, responsive, then when it's white, it's about death, like some kind of, and remember, impurity is considered to be death in life. That's why it is so terrifying. It is anti-life. Impurity can be anti-life. <clears throat> okay. So, so she she's bringing 1347. She's bringing this verse. It says when an eruptive affection occurs in a cloth of wool or linen fabric, which we read in the warp or the woof. Blah 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 blah. And she gives us Ramban. N Not not m mm, m mm, mm. Ramban. Nachmanides says. So he goes on, and it's a very long commentary, as you can see, and I even cut half of it off for you. Um, So, okay. She brings Ramban, who says, this is not a natural order of things, nor does it happen in the world outside of Israel. And similarly, leprosy of houses is not a natural phenomenon. So Ramban is saying, this is not something that just exists in the world and shows up. It only happens in the land of Israel. When Israel is wholly devoted to God, then God's spirit is upon them always to maintain their bodies, clothes and houses in good appearance. Thus, as soon as one of them commits a sin or a transgression, a deformity appears in his flesh or on his garment or in his house, revealing that God has turned aside from them. It is for this reason that scripture states, and I shall put the plague of leprosy in a house of the land of your possession. We just read that pasuk. We just read that, oh, what's in an English sentence? Meaning that it is God's punishment upon that house. This is a rabbinic interpretation. Thus, the law of leprosy of houses applies only in the land, which is the inheritance of the eternal God, right? When he... And we just read the verse, when you come to the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession. Now, the reason why this law does not apply outside the land of Israel is not because it is a duty which attaches to the ground. But the reason is because this matter of divine indication of sins occurs only in the chosen land, wherein the glorious name dwells. And in the Torah Kohanim, the sages further interpreted that a house does not contract impurity until after the conquest and division of the land. That's why that sentence says, after you conquer the land, there is no Sarahat when the Canaanites are there because God's presence is not there. It's the Israelites who then build the place where my name shall dwell. That's what brings the divine presence into Israel. Once the divine presence is there and people are living in order in line with the divine understanding of what is expected of them, Only then can sara'at occur when there is a disruption in that way of living in line with what God wants, right? The reason for this law is that only then do they have the ease of mind to know that the eternal and the divine glory dwells among them. And by way of the simple meaning of scripture, the reason why it repeats in every verse the expression, the garment or the skin or the warp or the woof is because the matter is miraculous. Ra'at is a miracle that can only happen in the land of Israel after the Israelites have conquered it and are presumed to be living with an understanding of fulfilling um, the divine expectation of their society. Sorry,
0: given this explanation, now I'm getting a little irritated with the word leprosy. With what? Leprosy is a translation because I think that's caused so much confusion because leprosy as we know, is an actual disease, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the ancient, and people have known about it. For, so what What the hell? Like,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> when people cuss at Torah studies, it's like, yes,
2: <laughs> we
1: have got them fully involved. <laughs> so it's, I think that's caused so much misunderstanding. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly a simplification that does not appreciate Right. Well, the the, the disease complexity disease. of disease. what's going on here. Right. I mean, if it's that given this interpretation, like just don't call it leprosy. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting. So I, I'm curious to know. I wish I could just read the minds quickly of everybody who's really cares about the translation of this text and see how many would agree that leprosy now probably shouldn't be the, you know what I mean? Uh, okay. So we got people in here who say, yeah, change it. Like doesn't work because it's, it, It used to work because of the stigma associated with it, but in a way, the stigma being caused by what makes you have the stigma of leprosy is not what's going on here.
2: As we're talking about all this in translation, it comes to my mind how, or a question that I have, how do you as a rabbi or other rabbis have a conversation with a teenager or somebody who is studying for a bar mitzvah, and this is their portion, (laughs) We talk a lot about um, the stigma that comes with being physically
1: otherized. We talk about COVID. We talk about HIV. I used to talk about HIV. These kids don't know from a time when that was so stigmatized, but I used to talk about HIV. We still talk about like they, they can talk about COVID. They can talk about the fear. They can talk about somebody who's physically different, somebody. And that, and we talk a lot about the fear of, of that people react to people who are different by, so that, that's, that's where usually where we go.
2: Not to be silly, but the reason I asked this is um, many, many years ago, this was the portion I had in my bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And all the conversations made absolutely no sense to me. Yeah. So we we,
1: we just, we Sometimes talk a lot hear about, hear it and, but we also talk about, well, at least I do. I can't speak for what Rabbi Sher does. But what I also focus with them about is the priest. That the most important person in the society was the one checking. So it's the opposite message of because you have this. Yes, they were isolated, but they were not shunned and they were not ignored. The most important person in the camp was the one checking on them. And there's a huge public ritual to bring them back into the community. And it's a beautiful ritual. And. With then, So then sometimes I talk with them about people who have cancer, you can tell you because they've lost their hair and they wear a scarf and whatever. It's like, where's the ritual to bring people back from that state of feeling other and not no, typical or normal for that period of time? Because you're not, you're just not when you're being poisoned so that you can survive. Um, and so any of us who have been ill and f- have felt kind of otherized or compromised and so feel otherized. What what do we have as a society have a way to bring people back publicly and acknowledge that and celebrate that? And we don't have it. So th- those are some of the ways I, I talk with them about it, is that the Israelite message is the opposite. That even though it was the most scary thing you could get, the priest went to your house, went in your house, touched you. Rather than, oh, we can't go near them because they were exposed to COVID and we're not going anywhere near their house. And we're not, you know, it's, does, does that make sense? So that's some of, that's some of where I go with them. Okay. Let's look at Zorenberg on this verse that we just read. You remember what Ramban just said? Only happens in the land of Israel after it's been conquered and divided. Yeah? up. This blotch on skin or clothing or housing indicates a disorder in the spiritual world. Such a situation in which physical symptoms directly indicate spiritual disorder is a unique dispensation, paradoxically, a kind of gift. And she looks at that sentence that I pointed out to you. I shall give you the plague of Sarai. Ramban emphasizes the connection with the holy land, not because of any particular agricultural commandment, but because the chosen land is the site of God's presence. In this heightened atmosphere, human misdeeds register directly. Furthermore, he cites Torah Kohanim, the Torah of the priests to the effect that sarat on houses appears only after the land has been fully conquered and apportioned. Only when each recognizes what is his, only in a state of yeshuv ha'daat, a return of, of, you know, a deep understanding of the divine, of general social and cultural order, is the individual capable of, quote, knowing God. And only in such a condition can sarat manifest itself. In a nation finely tuned to holiness... Individual disruptions will register in the aesthetics of skin and clothes and walls. When the baseline of spiritual life is set high, the Tzara'at phenomenon becomes a privilege. It constitutes a miracle. So I've never heard about it talked about this way. I think it's a really deep insight that she brings from the traditional commentary. That is, it's a gift for you to know with a very clear outward manifestation that there is a disruption in the field. It is only folks living close to the divine presence with an awareness of what the divine wants. It's only a people living in line with that that's gonna have an outward manifestation of a disruption of that relationship. Nowhere else does that happen because they are not living like that. Right? The pagans. According to ancient Israel. To understand it as a miracle is to understand it as a kind of gift. And then when I started really thinking about that, it's like, it's kind of what David was just saying. Like, what if we really did have a sign that erupted on our clothes or our skin or the wall over there that really did indicate a disruption in the spiritual field? As scary as that might be, it also then has this whole course of treatment and that when the treatment is done, you're pure. Everything is copacetic. Everything's back to okayness. And I now I'm like, I'm a kind of appreciating that I guess that is a weird sort of gift.
0: But then how, how, how do you avoid thinking that someone who is sick has caused it themselves? And that
1: they're
2: being punished by God.
1: Well, you wouldn't avoid that. You would say, clearly something's going on with Dana. And Dana or somebody else. Or somebody else, like George. But you know, but but Dana and George are not to be ignored because of that. They are to be tended to to do whatever is necessary to bring them back to the community in a state of purity. And I just kind of wish, <laughs> like, first of all, I wish this was true. It's not. It's obviously an ancient understanding of some, of some physical phenomenon, but like, there's a tiny little part of me that wishes something would go, uh, look, aim, aim, aim. Pay attention. Right? Uh, disruption in the field. Right? You need to go check in with your spiritual counselor. Right? You You need an appointment with your rabbi. So some people think that like illness kind of is that like, oh, you did, like there's some sort of alignment that you're
0: out of. And so being ill in any sense, what point to you you do need to check in? And so what what would you say to that?
1: I I would say that there is a very complicated relationship between our psychological, emotional, spiritual selves and our physical selves. And we do not understand it. Right. We, there's some stuff that's mostly physical. Hives might be physical because you touch something you're allergic to, or it might be right related to some kind of serious anxiety or, you know, so we just, and I think any physician here would agree with me. We don't know. We just don't understand all the ways that those things interact. I think what we do know is that there is a relationship and we don't know the proportions always we don't know the proportion of heart disease being caused by non-physical or physical we don't we don't know because people can eat the same thing but because of a different orientation or different genetics they react differently in terms of what it does to their heart remember that there was a book called zebras don't get heart attacks or some zebras don't get something about their hearts and it's about monkeys they took monkeys who had exactly the same diet lived in exactly the same place lived exactly in the same troop and where they were on the social strata was completely different in terms of how much, uh, buildup they had in their heart. You know, what, what is it? The bad stuff that builds up here?
0: Black.
1: No. Plaque. Uh, they had same diet, same behaviors, same troop, same everything. The higher the monkey was on the social ladder, the less plaque was in their artery. So, so we know there's a relationship, but we just don't know like where that ratio is. So my big pet peeve is when people want to make some kind of statement about, well, if you would just let go of your anger, you wouldn't have cancer. You wouldn't have heart disease, right? That's when I get really crazy because what you're doing is the opposite of this. You are, you are blaming the victim and saying if you just change something about who you are you wouldn't have this dis and while a, a part of that may be true that yes we need to be in alignment and all those ways that are really important it does not mean you won't get sick and it doesn't mean you won't get heart disease right so um and someone i knew who was a massage therapist and does you know reiki and does the needles acupuncture all that stuff you know, was always t- told me that the reason six million died in the Holocaust was because their souls needed to move to a higher vibration. When she had a minor heart attack, I was like, "Do not open your mouth," because 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 the temptation was to go, "Hmm, for you to just let go of your anger, <laughs> right?" But right because that's it just is
2: dismissive of people's suffering. is to say it's your fault. It seems to me that the the lack that many of us have is that of a spiritual counselor, and perhaps that's the reason we come here, because we feel that this is spiritual counseling.
1: Right. That this is this is a therapeutic session, right? That's preventive, hopefully, right? Um, hopefully, we don't need too much curative, but like when when it's necessary, hopefully we can deal with that too. All right. Um. So I'm gonna skip this one. Um, oh, Amy. Okay.
0: Um. Are you are you yes. giving the 50 minute hour? Um. And and charging fees for your uh, spiritual counseling.
1: The priest did not get paid. The priest got paid with food. So anybody saying, who feels not, so moved. I'm not asking Lisa, about the priest. Lisa feeds us. Right. Lisa feeds us with our with the muffins that we get at Torah Study. You only get if you come in person. Um, okay. So um so I want to go to this part that is about the person uh tearing their clothes covering their upper lip and having to announce impure, impure. So this this can seem really kind of yucky. This could seem a little cruel, like they have to walk through the streets identifying themselves by their clothing so everyone can see that, and by shouting out impure, impure. Now, Lots of commentators agree this was necessary because you can't see the tzaraat on the person. And so the person is warning people, I have COVID. I have COVID. Spiritual COVID. Right? And, and you don't want to catch that. Like, we don't want this to spread. So move out of the way because you become a vessel now, right? For impurity. Um, I, I'm very interested in what Zornberg brings as other commentary. Rashi our most favorite commentator i mean our most famous commentator um does say that that's one of the reasons but look at the other reason he says and he shall call out unclean unclean he must proclaim aloud that he is unclean so that people make ugh, make keep oh this is not what i wanted okay i put the wrong thing on here but he looks at he he brings mo'ed katan uh, a a piece of torah and what does mo'ed katan say about why um, he's calling out unclean, unclean. The Gemara asks, but with regard to this verse, does it come to teach this idea that verse is needed for that which is taught in the following Baraita? And he shall cry impure, impure. This teaches that the leper must inform the public of his distress and the public will pray for mercy on his behalf. So Rashi's bringing the Talmud that says it's not about Get out of the way so you don't get impure and spread it through the camp. That's not the point. It is about saying, I'm impure. I'm impure so that everyone who hears that will be, will feel moved to pray for you. All right. So let, and and this goes on, which is just beautiful. The cry of the leper communicates not the public health hazard he represents, but his sheer pain. In this reading, it is a religious requirement to affect others so that they will pray for him in his suffering. His desolation creates a connection with others whose compassion is stirred. I love this. The cry of the sufferer interrupts, appeals, demands. The one who hears him must ask for compassion. This is an ethical moment. Whether or not, and she's talking about mirror neurons, uh, whether or not neurons are at work the moment assumes the reality of compassion-suffering with the other who is apart from one the voice of the badad badad means very alone right you're isolated you're alone the voice of the badad condition strikes a common chord with remote others moreover the leper should proclaim his pain in public so that the many the rabim will hear And ask for compassion. The public sphere is strangely recreated in this uncanny scene. The leper does not ask for compassion. But he knows there is a world of others who will respond by themselves asking for divine compassion. That is an incredibly beautiful shift. Now, the Talmud and Chulin continues. She brings another place where we see this. And that is in Genesis. Members Genesis one and Genesis two are completely different creation narratives. We've talked about this a lot in here, yes. So we we accept that. We get that. But the rabbis have to harmonize those, don't they? They have a problem when Genesis one and Genesis two don't match. So there's a lot of ink spilled on trying to make them match. One of those places is, and the earth brought forth grass. On the third day of the week, Genesis 1, that's that creation narrative. But if you look at Genesis 2, on the third day of the week, what does it say? No shrub of the field was yet in the earth. Well, those don't match. But no problem. We're going to get the explanation. On Shabbat eve, the sixth day of creme- creation, immediately before Adam was created, Rob Asi explains, this teaches that the grasses emerged on the third day and stood at the opening of the ground. But they did not grow until Adam, the first human, came and prayed for mercy upon them. And then what happened? Rain came and they sprouted. And this is meant to teach you that the Holy One, blessed be God, desires the prayers of the righteous. Mean Okay, I'm not going to give you meaning because she does a beautiful, much more beautiful job of it than I will. This is a story about God's desire for the moment of Bakashat Rahamim, when a human being asks for compassion. Here we return to the Midrash about the cry of the leper and the response of those who hear it. The expression implies that the human being asks not for a thing. Gosh, my phone doesn't always catch every letter and translate it correctly. The expression implies that the human being in Bakashat Rahamim asks not for a thing. But for a non-thing, rachamim, mercy. Compassion arises in the matrixial embrace. My psychoanalytic people. Compassion arises in the matrixial embrace experienced in and symbolized by the womb. Because remember, rachamim comes from rechem, womb. Compassion is a connectedness that is also a kind of border crossing. Baby and mother. Mother. That is a border crossing and is the source of responsibility and care. The voice of prayer acts like a touch in the womb. When the baby moves in the womb, mom responds. Borders can be crossed without being removed entirely. I and non I are always linked in the matrixial, meaning I don't just respond to the baby when it's inside me as a mother. I respond to that baby when it's come to the other side of the boundary, the other side of the border. I am always related to the baby, the child, in the matrixial relation. Right? In that, in that world, there's always a relationship between I and non-I. To ask for compassion is to be possessed by this connection in difference. The connection in difference. That is the point. She's going to go on. This matrixial state is experienced as vulnerable, even helpless, right? The infant is helpless, as we know. Both Adam in a dry world and the leper disconnected from the vital energies that hold the social world together discovered this state. Connection in difference. Raham evokes not only the womb, but its linkage with the breast that suckles and nurtures life. It is striking that in rabbinic Hebrew, the verb rachem, to have compassion, becomes the technical expression for suckling Mm -hmm. in animal and human life. It is used without self-consciousness as a concrete analog to its metaphorical usage as compassion. Without this instinctual movement of active interlacing of mother and child, the world could not continue because we're born helpless. Perhaps something like this is also true of the human and the divine in the position of prayer. In Aramaic translation, the Rachem root represents simply love. Bert and Mark, this goes to our conversation last night where someone said to me, there's a big, Phil Cal said, there's a big difference between empathy and love. And I'm going to send this to him because this I'd already read before that class, which is for the rabbis, no. They use that term interchangeably. For the rabbis, rachem actually means love. It's an evolution. It starts as a meaning compassion or empathy. It moves in their language. You know, languages change very quickly. In their language, rachem becomes the word one of the words for love. That they're not so different for the rabbis, which I think is an important point. Um, because we see a big difference in those things. And I think it's an important point that for the rabbis, they don't um, see those so different. I know we have to close. So I want to get to Rabbi Sheila Paltz-Weinberg. Can
2: you just quickly reiterate, rah-im, rah-im, rah-im. Rah-im. all the difference in, in that root word, from womb to love to, it means mercy. Racham comes from womb,
1: rechem what one feels for the issue of one's womb is now you figure out what English word you want to put on that. But the sense is it is unearned. It is unearned. There's nothing a baby can do to earn what we feel for them. It just is hopefully, um, you know, and in the normal state of things, it is, it exists and it is evoked by the infant, um, without it earning that. It doesn't do anything, right? You can't earn rachamim. You might can earn love or whatever, but you can't earn rachamim or chen, grace. Neither one of those can be earned. It is freely given, okay? Let's look at Sheila Peltz-Weinberg, who I got this because she wrote a book called God Loves the Stranger, which we got a couple of pages from in our Women's Mindfulness um cohort this week and i'm this like jumped off the page as totally connecting to what we just said the collective sometimes i cannot connect to any of the above meaning stuff she's been talking about or any of the other skillful tools that help lift me or remind me that my life is not permanently stuck on the down dial sometimes maybe often i cannot lift myself up but you my friend my teacher comrade, colleague, fellow seeker, you can. I call out and you answer. You remind me that I am not, that I was not all or that I am not always like this. You remind me that I have had other moments and I will again. You remind me that this happened before and remember in your presence, I am no longer alone. I am no longer separate. The very exchange of our breath Reminds me that my bar- borders are far more permeable than I suppose. I have chills. Um, an incredibly beautiful contemporary. She's not talking about Sarah. This is not a commentary on our Torah portion. This is just a book on mindfulness and Jewish approaches to living in a mindful way. And it's like, it's like, so it hasn't changed from Zornberg and Ramban's interpretation of what the, the Mitzorah needs. Is that matrixial connection in difference when one feels and is experiencing badad, being alone, being other, being outside, what one needs is some way, right, to know that one is connected to the the broader whole, that I wasn't always like this, I am not always like this, and I won't always be, and I am connected even in my um otherness even in my aloneness and that we all need that that is what we are to be to each other talking about spiritual um refua spiritual healing and treatment that's what hopefully we come here for to this clinic we come to get a little shot of um of this that really is one of the only things that heals our very human existential aloneness which is not a disease. It is the way things are. Sometimes that bothers us more than others or scares us more than others, um, or we're aware of it more than others. And and this is always a, a booster um, to get us through, right? Uh, dealing with that, knowing that we are part of this amazing collective.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kahil at Israel in Pacific Palisades, California.